Well, good morning, everybody. Hi, Ari. Good. It's good to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Reese. Uh, I'm the pastor of Jacqueline Street Alliance Church, which is uh, your church plant. So before we begin, let me thank you uh, on behalf of Jacqueline Street Alliance Church for your uh, continued care and, and kindness toward us. Uh, the Lord has been extremely gracious to us this past year uh, and extremely kind to us, and, and, and much of his grace and kindness has been shown to us through you. Uh, so thank you for your continued prayer, your continued support. Uh, we love you. Uh, we'd love if you came to visit, and if you came to visit and decided to stay, we would love that too. So, you know, every Sunday morning at 10.30, we're over on Jacklin Street. It'd be great to see you. Uh, so it's a pleasure to be here and to see you all. Uh, now, friends, our passage this morning will be Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 comes hot on the heels of Genesis 1 and 2, where God created a world that he described as very good. He had, he had made everything. He had created humanity in his image. He had placed them in the Garden of Eden to enjoy his work. And there, Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony with each other, with all of creation, and with God. Every day was with their perfect creator. In his perfect creation, there was no fear, no sickness, no evil, There was no sin, friends. There was no death. It was perfect. And so with that that picture of perfection in mind, I want you to imagine for a moment being a Hebrew, hearing the story of Genesis 1 and 2 for the first time. You've escaped Egypt. Moses is, is talking to you about this perfect place, and you can't reconcile Eden with your reality. You were You were born a slave. Your parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents were all slaves. There has been very little, if anything, about your life that can be described as very good. And, you know, sure, you're, you're not in Egypt. You're no longer a slave. You've escaped, but you're sitting in the desert at, a foot, at the foot of this mountain, and you're wondering, how on earth did everything go from this, perf- this perfect thing that Moses is telling us about to life as you know it? How do we go from very good to this? Friends, Genesis 3 is the answer to that question. Genesis 3 answers the question of what is wrong with the world. Here we see the introduction of sin into God's good creation. Well, what happens in Genesis 3 changes the course of human history forever. This explains, beloved, why we suffer, why we feel pain, why evil and death death exist. And Genesis 3 explains why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. So if you haven't already turned there, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 3. And here in Genesis 3, we see that the drama of the chapter unfolds in three parts. We see the fall, we see the aftermath, and then at the end, we see the consequences. We begin this morning by looking at the fall. Look with me now at verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Well, these are the actions of our first parents known as the fall. The fall is simply the term used to describe Adam and Eve's fall from innocence to guilt. This is, friends, the moment of original sin that caused humanity to plummet from the perfect state that we were created into the fallen state that we now know. Before going any further, it would be good for us to have an understanding of what sin is. Is. And so the New City Catechism, which you guys use Sunday mornings with the children, the New City Catechism defines, defines sin as rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his laws, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Simply put, friends, sin is breaking God's law. God is the holy creator of all things. As such, he owns everything that he creates. He, he made it. He owns it. It's his. He makes the rules. He, he makes the laws because he is the creator. With creator comes ownership. And friends, because he is holy, because God is holy, his law is perfect, and any any violation of that law is a transgression against the holy God who made it and is punishable by death. We, we need to understand that there are no small sins because God's holiness is no small matter. Understanding God's holiness puts sin into perspective. And so here in verse 1, friends, we are introduced to the serpent. We are told that it's cunning we're told that it can talk. We're not told why it can talk. We're just told that it can. We're not even explicitly told here in these verses that the serpent is Satan, but the traditional and biblical understanding of this account is that at the very least, the serpent is a tool of Satan. However, it's important that we realize that this account isn't concerned with telling us who the serpent is. The who is not important. What's important is what the serpent says. The serpent's speech is of greatest concern because what the serpent says leads to sin. The serpent begins here by questioning God. Did God actually say? He asks a question. And notice what he questions. He questions God's goodness and care and his generosity. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, no, that's the exact opposite of what God said. In Genesis 1.29, God says, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. In Genesis 2.16, God says that they can eat from any tree in the garden. God had given them every good fruit to eat except one. Friends, God wasn't being stingy. He hasn't left them lacking in, in anything. His prohibition here was in an environment of, of plenty and freedom. He withheld one tree, and he did that because he knew what would happen if they ate of that tree. Friends, it was not cruel for God to withhold this tree from his people. It was loving. 
God, God does not withhold things from his people because he is harsh or indifferent. No, friends, he places prohibitions on things because he knows that using these things in ways other than what he created them for is dangerous and damaging. He knows that to use them outside of what he meant them for is bad for us. But we see here that sin so often begins with questioning God. Why, why, why can't I love this thing more than I love God? Why can't I, I hate this person who has wronged me? Why can't I dishonor my clueless parents? Why can't I lie? Why can't I do whatever I want? These, these questions and questions like them, friends, they call into question God's goodness. But they really shouldn't. God doesn't prohibit anything out of stinginess. All of his prohibitions are out of love. And friends, we, we keep things from people for the same reason. Parents, we tell our children not to eat candy because we know it's bad for them. We tell them they can't watch TV, don't run across the street after your ball. We prohibit actions as parents, not because we're mean, but because we love our children. God does the same thing. He created the world according to his principles, and he knows what is best. Uh, for one example of this, let's consider briefly idolatry. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator, and we all do it. We all do this, and God hates idolatry. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments prohibits idolatry. It is a sin. Why is idolatry a sin? Why is it sinful to love something God made more than loving him? Well, friends, it's because God made us to glorify him. God's prohibition of idolatry is not selfishness. It's because he knows what he made us for. He made us to love and follow him. He, he made us to rely on him for our care and our flourishing. When we rely on something weak and powerless, we are destined for a life of pain and disappointment. Money cannot fulfill your needs. Sex won't make you feel unconditional love. Power won't lead to acceptance. Friends, only God can meet your needs. Only God can meet the needs of his creatures. And we are to, so to, we are to avoid idolatry because God deserves our worship and, and friends, because we were made to worship him. Worshiping him is what's best for us. Christian, do not disobey God's commands. They are for your good, not for your Harm. They are not there to ruin your fun or to cause you pain. They are there to lead you to an abundant life. David says, the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. God's law is there to care for us. God, God made the world. He knows how it works. We should trust his commands. And it's important that we don't misrepresent them. Because we see that happening here. In, in response to the serpent's questioning, Eve misrepresents God's instructions. She says here that, that, that God said that they could not even touch of the fruit of the tree. That's, that's not true. God said they could not eat the fruit. He said, he said nothing about touching. The serpent here is sowing discord and with, with these questions, and Eve here is, is listening to him. She shouldn't have acknowledged him or his questions, but now she's, she's listening, she's talking, and she's distorting God's instructions as she answers the serpent. 
Now, we don't know why she distorts his instructions in this way. We don't know why she answers like this. Maybe, maybe Adam didn't correctly uh, tr- you know, tell her what God had said. Maybe when he was instructing her, she wasn't listening. Whatever the reason is, we see here that there is danger in misrepresenting or adding to the commands of God. Friends, God's commands are perfect. There is no need to add to them. This is especially true, Christian, when we consider the gospel. There is nothing for us to add to the gospel. On the cross, Christ finished the work necessary for salvation completely. To add anything to it is to try and save ourselves, which we cannot do. We must never try to add anything to God. We cannot add to his commands. We cannot add to what he does. And so we see here that that Eve misrepresents God's commands saying that eating or touching the fruit will lead to death. And, and once, once she says this, once she begins misrepresenting the commands of God, the serpent strikes. It's like he was, he was coiled, ready for this moment when he could strike and unleash his venom. He, he unleashes a string here of half-truths in verses 4 and 5 that make it seem like God is keeping something great from his creation. Look at verse 4. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And now notice these are half-truths. There are no outright lies here. You won't die right away. Your eyes will be opened to see your shame and the knowledge of your disobedience. You will be like God in knowing good and evil. But he doesn't mention that this knowledge will lead to the destruction of the union that exists between God and his image bearers. Christian, there is such an important lesson here for us to to remember that we must beware the false promises of sin. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It promises autonomy, but it delivers death. Friends, sin promises you that you will be like God. It says, make your own laws, live your own way. You don't need God to tell you what to do. Do it your way. This is a recipe for disaster. Sin, sin promises you that you can be your own small G God, but what it delivers, friends, is the wrath of God. We see here that Eve bites deep into the deception of the serpent and she disobeys God. She decides that she wants to be the master of her own fate, the commander of her own soul. She thinks that she knows the way to wisdom better than God and so she does not fear and obey. She eats the fruit and Adam goes right along with her. We're not told that he's deceived we see that he's simply abandoned his duty to lead his bride. We read, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Cue now the aftermath. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The result of sin, friends, is immediate. Shame. Immediate. It's true, friends, that they are not dead. It's also true that their eyes have been opened, but instead of giving them the autonomy and the wisdom that they were promised, they are overwhelmed by their shame. They have disobeyed the law of God, and instead of being like him, they are ashamed of what they've done. Friends, as I've already said, sin always promises more than what it delivers. Yes, it is true that in the moment, sin can feel really good. I'm sure that this fruit, I'm sure that it was sweeter than anything that we can imagine. But its promises were false. And and friends, you know that sin's promises are false. Sin feels good feels good in that moment. Drunkenness is fun. Sexual immorality is exciting. Theft is entertaining. Gossip is cool. Until the shame sets in. Until the moment where disappointment sets in. Or until, friends, you are left in the wake of your destructive, sinful behavior and you're you're depressed, lonely, broken, and ashamed. Remember what the serpent promised them. He said, you would be like God. Instead, they're cowering in the garden, hiding among the trees that they had freely lived in. Though they're fashioning garments for themselves where a moment ago they had no concept of what shame was. Sin had not delivered on its promise. And it never does. Friends, the truth of this is evident from the world around us. The world is telling you to, to, to do you. Right? It's telling you to live this way. And friends, we, we know that it's not true. So Christian, why do you return to your sin? You know that sin is destructive. You know that it's the problem, not the solution. You know that Christ died bearing your sin on the cross for these sins to deliver you from the clutches of sin. And yet we return to these empty promises. Friends, the world is, is, is screaming at you to live your way. It's, it's telling you that it's all about you. It's saying that if you live according to the way you want, that you will, you will realize your own reality no matter the cost. And when you do that, that you'll finally be happy. It says that you'll be freed from the oppressive rules of the old way and you'll be happy. Do it your way and you'll be happy. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It is the same tactic that the serpent uses in the garden. You cannot break God's law and escape consequences. Yes, it's true that your conscience can be seared and you can sometimes live for years without understanding the weight of your sin. But friends, in the quiet moments, the reality of your sin will crush you. The things that people think will free them, enslave them. 
sin never delivers. That's the immediate lesson we learn here in verses uh, uh, 7 to 17. We learn immediately that sin doesn't deliver. But friends, the second thing we see displayed for us here is the gentleness of God. Adam and Eve are cowering in the bushes. And as they are hiding, God walks in the garden in the evening breeze. Beloved, think for a moment on what it is that they've just lost. They dwelt with God. They communed with him. They will never interact with God again in the way that they were used to doing. The intimacy of walking with God in the garden marked their lives, and it's gone. But God comes looking for them. And as he looks, his response to their sin is that like a a gentle father looking for disobedient children. Parents, we've all had this moment where we have seen the evidence of our children's transgression before we've seen the kids. Right, you've seen the broken toys or the blood. <laughs> you know, you've listened to, you've heard the whispered conversations between guilty parties talking about who did what wrong and what's going to happen. And yet you've still walked into the room and feigned ignorance and asked what happened. God, God does that here. God, it's not like he's been fooled. He knows exactly what has happened. But friends, in his reaction, we see a picture of who he is. Instead of of instantly obliterating Adam and Eve, which he could have done, which he was within his rights to do, instead instead of obliterating them or berating them, he says, what is this you have done? He gives them an opportunity to confess their sin, but sin has already corrupted their relationship with him. Instead of rejoicing in his presence, they hide. Instead of confessing their sin, they pass the blame, and God's response is gentle. Friends, it is so important that we remember what Psalm 145 tells us. Psalm 145.8 says that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So many times we conceive of God as this perpetually angry being who's always looking for a reason to explode in rage. That's not who he is. The Bible tells us that God is provoked to anger. But it says that he is love. He, he is love. Love. He is abounding and overflowing in it. And we see that here. But friends, his love does not mean that he neglects consequences. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Love necessitates consequences. And in verses 4 to the end of the chapter, we see the consequences of sin. Sorry, in verses 14. Look at me now at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve 
because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Friends, here the reality of sin comes crashing down. They will not be like God. They will be removed from his presence where they will, where they will suffer and die. Sin hasn't delivered and the consequences are worse than they could ever have imagined. In these curses, God undoes the work of creation. It's no longer very good. He curses the ground that he created, the thing from which humanity was made. Enmity now exists between different parts of his creation. There is struggle, pain, and death. God begins with the serpent. He is more cursed than the rest of the animals. He is condemned to shamefully crawl in the dirt. He is told that one day he'll be destroyed by the offspring of the woman. Then God turns to Eve and radically changes her life. She was created to help Adam, to be fruitful and multiply. She was created to be a helper corresponding to him. And now both of those things are twisted because of sin. Childbearing will be painful. Instead of submitting to her husband, she'll want to rule over him in a reversal of created order. Next, God turns to Adam, and he tells him that his labor will also be marked by pain. Work, work friends, wasn't created a trial, and now it's painful. He will toil all his life, fighting the ground from which he was taken. Then at the end of his toil, he'll die and return to dust. And then finally, in an act of love, God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. It's loving because in doing so, he prevents them from having access to the tree of life so that they do not live forever in their sinful state. Friends, now, now the Hebrews know what happened. They know how the world went from very good to broken. They know that it happened because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Their sin twisted the whole world. And we all now suffer as a result of that sin. Genesis 3, friends, it tells them, it tells us what has happened, and it gives us now a glimmer of hope. The Hebrews and us, we are introduced to the fact that someday someone who will, who will make it all very good will come. We see that in Genesis 3, 15. There's a whisper there in that verse that someday the world will be made right. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, this is known as the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel the gospel is the story, friends, of how the curse is defeated, how sin is overthrown, how God's people will dwell with him again. And, and the gospel is the story of Jesus. Christian, we have the, the glorious privilege of reading Genesis 3 in light of Christ. We know, we know that he has defeated Satan's sin and death. 
We know that he is, he is coming again for his people. We know that on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. We, we know that the Bible tells us that we are all born in sin. Every human being from this moment on has been born in sin, unable to keep the law of God because of our sin. And we know that, that on the cross, Jesus died the, penul- the penultimate, that's a big word, he died the penultimate death. In his death, he died the final death that all his people would have to die. He died so that his people could live forever. In the death of Christ, friends, because of his perfection, all the sins of his beloved are paid for. They are atoned for so that when when those who come to Christ in repentance of their sin and seek forgiveness through him, and we believe on his finished work through faith, the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus is placed on us and we are forgiven. And we are brought back into relationship with him. And on the day we die or on the day Christ returns, we will be welcomed back into relationship with God. We will dwell with our holy creator again. That which was lost will be found. That which was broken will be remade. And we will dwell with our great God forever because of the work of Jesus in undoing the curse. Christian, that is good news. Friends, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, that is what we believe as Christians, that Christ came, that in his perfect life and obedience, he died to take on the punishment for sin that we all rightly bear, and that when you come to him and confess your sin and turn to him, he is good and faithful to forgive sin and will save you. So if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to become a Christian. If you have questions about that, I'll be standing at the back at the end of the service. I would love to talk to you. So would anybody else in this room. So just ask questions. Find out what it means to be a Christian. But friends, in order to be saved from God's righteous wrath, you must believe on Jesus. The consequences of sin is death. The only way to be freed from those consequences is through Jesus. And one day, God's people will dwell with him in a world that has been made very good again. We will live and we will work as we were meant to live as God's people with him. Now, Christian, consider for a moment how the work of Christ undoes the curse of Genesis 3. Where where Adam and Eve took of the fruit and died, those who take and eat of Christ will live. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. When we take communion, friends, we are celebrating the fact that those in Christ have been made alive. We we eat the Lord's Supper remembering his life and looking forward to our life with him. Consider also the fact, beloved, that, that Christ was crucified wearing a crown of thorns. He bore physically on his body the results of the curse. The, the, the thorns that grew up out of the ground as a result of the curse Uh, formed the crown that framed our Savior's brow. Thorns pierced him as our sins were heaped on him. Finally, consider the fact, friends, that in the garden, we see that God is the one who covers our sins. In verse 21, God looks at Adam and Eve's feeble attempts at righteousness at their leaves, and he shows them that his way is better. He clothes them. And in that act, we see that atonement for sin cannot be done our way. We, we, we cannot cover our own shame or earn our forgiveness. We cannot be made right with God on our own strength. Something had to die to cover their shame. Jesus had to die to cover our sin. 
Because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin and guilt, unable to keep God's law. But Romans 5, 19 says that just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also, friends, through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Sinners in Adam, righteous in Christ. Friends, Genesis 3 answers the question of where did it all go wrong? It tells us that someday it will all be made right. It is a testimony to the fallenness of human nature, but also to the grace of God. God, friends, did not leave his people dead in our sins. He sent the serpent crusher, his son, to save his people, and he will send him again to bring his people home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it instructs us about who you are and what you have done. We thank you for even as it tells us of our sin, it also tells us how we can be saved. So Father, we ask that you would help us to live in the light of the work of Christ. Thank you for sending your son to crush the serpent. Well, I pray that you would help us to all faithfully follow him and to walk in the light of his finished work. It's in Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen.